Okay, good morning. Could I quickly see, quickly see a show of hands for those of you that would classify yourself as a morning person? Who would classify themselves as a morning person? A few, maybe even half of you, which I find to be surprising. Okay, uh, if you were to ask my wife, who I, she loves it when I do this, when I just called on her, she walked in the room. If you were to ask my wife if I am a morning person, she would tell you that I am. But here, here's the thing. I don't actually think that I am, by nature, a morning person. Before I was here at the church, I worked for a publishing company that required me to drive halfway across town every morning. And of course, when I worked there, it was pre-pandemic, uh, so there, were, there weren't many uh, people working from home in Nashville. Still, the, the better part of the, of the, of the community would, would travel to, to wherever they were going for, for work. And we all got in our cars and, and did that morning commute. Now, as a qualifier, I don't, I don't think Nashville has ever been as bad as, as, say, the traffic in Atlanta is fresh on my mind because we just drove through there last uh, yesterday. And oh, my goodness, from Macon to Atlanta, bumper to bumper, it felt like we were just stop and go the whole way on a Saturday. So, again, when we complain about Nashville traffic, I feel like you have to throw that qualifier out there. It's not the worst I've ever seen, but it has its moments moments of glory in terms of, you know, how the, uh, they, they rank the, the traffic in, in the, around the country. So, again, at one point, in order to beat the traffic uh, every day, I tried to leave uh, when I was heading downtown Nashville, I tried to beat the traffic. And in order to do all the things that are required of you before your workday starts, anything that involves a routine, you know, like having a quiet time or exercising, well, you have to get up much earlier to do those things to be able to still beat traffic. So at one point to do all those things in effort to beat the traffic and do my routines, I found myself getting up at 4.30 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. Now, uh, I'm a reasonable person. And I know that sounds awful. And it is, it is awful, okay? And, and uh, I, I did not enjoy it. I like sleep. I know that even the morning people like sleep. We all like sleep. Who doesn't like to sleep? And by nature, I think I'm a night owl anyway. In college, I would, I would burn the midnight oil and sleep in as late as I, as I possibly could. Uh, but then life comes at you, right? Life comes at you, you have responsibilities. And then I went and had a family who wants to spend time with me and all that. And, and uh, when I get home, and there aren't enough hours during the day. There really aren't enough hours during the day, so I would get up early. So it seems that my body has, has become accustomed to getting up early now. I don't have to drive across town to get to work. My, my commute in, into the church is, is so much nicer than the commute that I had before. But again, my body has, has become accustomed to doing this. And to top it off, I, I help with all the carpool duties in the morning still. So I still have to get up early. So what, what time I gained by, by lessening my commute, I still have to do with, with uh, carpool and, and whatnot. And, and uh, for some awful reason, they make our kids go to school at 7.30 in the morning. So I have to get up early to be able to back up and do all that. Now, let's just say I get up at 4.45, all right? Let's just say I wake up at 4.45 and, and I go through my morning routine. And then later on, I, I greet another member of my family, won't mention any names, but I greeted another men member of my family who gets up at 6.45. If I get up at 4.45 and this other family member get gets up at 6.45, I've already been up for two hours, okay? My day is well on its way, all right? And, and uh, if I've been up for a couple hours, my, my demeanor and my voice is going to sound a little bit more chipper than theirs, okay? Good morning. <laughs> Sometimes I get nothing back, no response. No, nothing with words. I don't get a response with words. Sometimes I get that look that, you know, feels like they're shooting laser beams through your, your, uh, your skull. My son, for instance, he has to be at school at 7.30 or so. So that means he's not getting up a minute before 6.45. The latest he possibly can get up. And, and at 6.45 and all the way into school, there's, there's sometimes I question whether or not he actually has a pulse. 
and his eyes, his eyes are not quite open. He says no words, but somehow he's still able to talk, and, but he doesn't, all right? So I take comfort in that. He, maybe he's just in a bad mood, okay? Maybe he's not a morning person, you know? None of us are, okay? And so when you're in a bad mood, sometimes you say and do things that you normally wouldn't do. If I say good morning and I get nothing back from you, in any other circumstance, that would be considered rude. It's just rude, okay? But again, it's so early, so we say, well, you know, he's in a bad mood, or, or maybe he's not really a morning person, and we give him a pass. That's okay, right? But is it okay? Is it ever okay to be rude? Is there ever really a good reason to allow your mood to affect your behavior to the point that is, that is hurtful to someone or something else? And the passage that we're going to look at today in our hard sayings of the Bible series has a flavor like this. And for years, I read it this way. It's an account in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus comes to a fig tree. He didn't find any figs on it. And then he cursed the fig tree and the fig tree dies. Okay? And maybe, again, like me, the first time you read that, you come away with this impression that Jesus must be in a bad mood. You know? In fact, there was a philosopher of the late 19th and early 20th century named Bertrand Russell who cited this, who cited this passage as one of the reasons that, that he couldn't believe in Jesus because he noted this, this was such an abuse of power, he called it, to an innocent tree. A loving God wouldn't do that, right? I bet he lived in a log cabin, though. Let's, let's be honest, though. Where did those trees come from? So it seems like Jesus was in a bad mood. And he, and he takes it out on, on well, not, not a person, but an object. And so maybe you say, well, well, it's just an object, no big deal. He didn't hurt anyone. But even so, why does Jesus engage in a destructive act like this, right? And we're not used to seeing Jesus operate this way. That's not, that's not how we normally see him throughout the, the, the rest of the pages of the gospel. So why does he do this? Now, a bit of a disclaimer. It's going to take me a few minutes to set this up. But to me, I just find this so fascinating. This is just uh, incredible. Uh, because again, every word that's on the pages of Scripture, it, it's there for a reason. It, it's there uh, precisely put. Um, it's not just a, a, well, let me just see what I can write about next in the gospel. Right? They, every word is precisely put where, where it needs to be. And, uh, and again, when you, you, I don't think there's any other passage in the, in the gospels that showcase it more than this. But, but if you've ever read it, again, I guarantee there's a small part of you that, that, that wondered, wow, Jesus, that seems a little harsh. Uh, it seems a little heavy-handed, and maybe you thought that, but I wonder how many of you realize the deeper message behind what's going on in this account. Okay, the passage which I'm talking about can be found in Mark 11, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there for starters. Um, that's in Mark 11, and for those of you that do have your Bibles, let me ask you a question. As we talk about all the time with these, these passages, note the context. Very important to note the context. The context tells the story. All right, so notice the context as chapter 11 starts. For those of you who have your Bibles, what is the, the marker at the beginning of chapter 11? What do your Bible headings tell you? What is it? The triumphal entry, okay? The irony, the irony of the triumphal entry is that it sort of marks the beginning of the end, okay? The triumphal entry is sort of the beginning of the end. Uh, as, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people were waving their palm branches and crying out, please save us, which is, which is how we would translate that word Hosanna. So, so expectations for Jesus are at an all-time high. He comes into the city, uh, into the city, and the people believe. We're told in verse 10, it says this, 
Sorry, uh, for those of you online, uh, you're not going to be able to see this very well, but this is Mark 11, verse 10, and it says, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Can y'all see it in the back? Is that, it's not at a funny angle? Okay. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. So these are the Jewish people meeting and, and cheering on Jesus. And you have to understand here, and I wish I had more time to unfold all this for you, but again, considering the context, you have to realize this pattern that's been set forth in the Old Testament. The people of God, the Israelites, right, had become accustomed to a, a pattern of sorts. They had high highs during the reign of, of King David, for instance, but they would also have low lows, for example, during the period of exile. Uh, they had moments of greatness where they were the most powerful thing around, and they defeated all their enemies, but inevitably, they would get cocky, and they would fall into sin. And they would be seduced by the religious practices of, of the pagan nations around them. And they would chase after other gods and the Lord would judge his people and turn them over to their enemies. This is a cyclical pattern over and over again in the Old Testament. And then, again, this is not much different than you and I too. We do the same thing. They, they realize their, their stupid ways and they would cry out to the Lord for deliverance saying, in effect, please save us. Hosanna is what they cried. Hosanna is not just a New, New Testament thing. This is what they said all throughout the, the Old Testament too. Save us, God, save us. And the Lord would again have mercy on them and deliver them. And they would sing, happy days are here again. Okay, because they'd be back on top. And that pattern would repeat itself in some fashion. Sin, wickedness, judgment, repentance. And then God would send a deliverer. All right, this is particularly, particularly the pattern in the book of Judges. You see it condensed into one book over and over and over and over and over again, okay, repeating this pattern of what God's people did over all throughout the Old Testament. Now, what you have to remember, that cyclical pattern, is that those aren't isolated events in time, space, history, all right? They're all pointers. That re repetitive pattern is not just random events. They're, those, those events are pointing. They're pointing to someone. They're pointing to Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, the deliverer who would deliver his people from the greatest oppressor they've ever known, sin and death. All those, all those, those events in the Old Testament were just pointers to one day how Jesus would be the ultimate deliverer. Okay, and so what would happen is, is the deliverers they looked for and experienced throughout their history were only a foretaste of Jesus himself. And so now in this context, we're reading about Jesus. The people of God find themselves at a low point again. They're at a low point again. They're, they're under the rule of Rome, and, and they don't think of themselves as free. They think of themselves as oppressed. And in fact, as Jesus comes to town, they're saying, boy, remember those days of David? Remember those days of David? Remember the glory days? One day, one day the Lord will bring us another David. One day the Lord will bring us another one. That's why they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They think he's here. This is it. Now, another little piece of information that we don't get here in the book of Mark, but just prior to the triumphal entry, there was another significant event in Jesus' ministry that, that might have actually precipitated this triumphal entry. Do you remember what that was? Anyone remember what happened just before this? It was the raising of Lazarus. Okay, that's important. Jesus raised Lazarus, and, and then those in authority whose positions of power were threatened, then plotted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. But the Jews, when they heard about Lazarus, they were over the moon. Oh, this is fantastic. This is great. They thought a person that can raise someone from the dead, 
this is going to be a deliverer even better than David. So, so by the time Jesus came to Jerusalem, the people are all stirred up in a frenzy. Their deliverer is here. Israel is going to be on top again, all right? But, but is that what would happen? No, that's not the deliverance that, that Jesus was going to bring. And ultimately, this is why the people would turn on him, because they were expecting one thing, but instead it didn't quite meet their expectation, right? Ultimately, this is why they would turn on him, because he wasn't that type of conqueror. He didn't come with a sword. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. Now, as these people are waving their palm branches, crying out, please save us, we already know that they didn't get it. We know they didn't get it. Do you think Jesus knew they didn't get it? Yeah, he knew. He understood what was happening here. You can imagine he's, he's very begrudgingly watching this, okay? He knew they didn't get it. Of course he knew. They want something from him, but the thing he brings, they're not interested in it. And, and what happens the next day? So again, picture that scene, triumphal entry, waving palm branches. This is the new David. This is the one who's going to put us on top again. Jesus knows they're not getting it, knows they're missing it. And then this is the next day. All right. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then immediately after this, I, again, I just love the placement of this. Because if you're just reading through the Gospels, you, you're, you may not pick up on this. You may think, well, he's just writing chronologically. But he didn't have to do it this way. This gospel writer didn't have to do it this way, but he did. Okay, so what's he doing? Immediately after that, we get the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, and notice what Mark does here. He writes about the fig tree. Then he writes about Jesus cleansing the temple. temple and then he comes back to the fig tree. It's like he's written a, a temple sandwich here. A, a fig temple sandwich a Fig Newton Temple sandwich. That's not even in my notes. Just came up with that right here. Naturally, that's not a mistake. It's very intentional. What Mark is showing us is the temple event is very much related to the fig tree. It's not by accident that they're back to back, or it's sandwiched between the fig tree. It is, it's a Fig Newton. And, and it's very important to remember this. The temple is the central point of, or a central object of faith in the Jewish, to the Jewish person back then. It, it was the temple that was the focal point. Everything revolved around the temple. Keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to the temple. But first, let's figure out what the passage, uh, what the meaning or the message behind the, the fig tree. And then let's ask ourselves how the cleansing of the temple relates to Jesus telling about the, the, the fig tree, okay? So again, this is the order of events. Triumphal entry, cursing of the fig tree, clearing of the temple, and then you're going to walk away thinking after all that, wow, Jesus is in a really bad mood. First, he kills off the, the fig tree, right? Curses at it. And he clears off the, the, the temple, right? He's in a bad mood. So then Jesus and the disciples get back to the fig tree, Mark eleven twenty and following. And they pass by in the morning. Again, he just cleared, cleared out the temple. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse is withered. Okay, if we can oversimplify this a bit, why, why is Jesus in a bad mood? 
if I can say that for just a moment. Was it that he was just hungry? He was angry. Hangry. Hangry. <laughs> he was hangry. Considering everything we just read, what's on Jesus' mind here? Considering the triumphal entry, okay? There's no fruit. They don't get it. These people waving palm branches. These people in the temple, they don't get it. They're missing something. They don't get it. They're not getting it. He's trouble over everything we just talked about. Here, Here are the people of God. They see what's happening. They see and hear the words that he's speaking. They've seen the mighty acts he's performed, which they should know serve as a sign, a sign that he's the one, that, that, that he is who he says he is, and he's there to do something that, that, that God sent him to do. They hear him, but they're not listening. I'm embarrassed to say this sort of dynamic happens all the time at our house. And again, I'm, I'm raising my hand here. My, my wife will often be talking to me, and I'm listening to her. Okay. In fact, I'll be, I'll be looking at her right in the eyes as she talks, and I'm not doing anything other than looking at her eyes and receiving the information from her. And then suddenly she says something to me like, well, what do you think about that? And I say something like, I agree. <laughs> and, and then I, as I say that, I'm wincing a little bit because I, I can tell the matter is not over. Uh, there's a little bit of a pause while the eye contact is maintained from her. And I, I'll swear to you once again, sometimes I, I, I can feel heat on my face in this moment. And, and, uh, and then she says something like, you agree with what? Which one? So I take a deep breath and I have a choice here. I can, I I can take a shot in the other, utter darkness and I can say, the first one. But then you might be committing to something <laughs> that you don't know, don't, you don't realize you're you're committing to, right? Okay, so uh, it's all kinds of risk there. Too risky to, to to blindly answer that. So I have to fess up, and I, I I sort of fess up passively, and I don't just say I wasn't listening. I dress it up a bit, and I say something like, "Well, walk me through the options one more time." Right? And truthfully, that's when the gig is up. She knows and, and, and confronts me. You weren't listening to me, were you? And I have to apologize again, you know, trying to explain the fact that my, my mind was distracted by probably you know, complex mathematical problems that are going on. I'm trying to solve things. And I was momentarily distracted uh, from really something, you know, it's very important what I have going on up here. And, and I didn't want to abandon that train of thought. I wanted to see it through, okay? It was really very important what I was thinking about. I was probably some, somehow you know, it was life and death. Point being, even though I'm looking right at her, even though I'm looking right at her, showing all the right signs that I'm listening to her, I was missing it. And all kidding aside, I really try not to do that. I really do, because she deserves much better than that. But again, look at what Jesus must be thinking here. Same thing. And I think Scott even mentioned this earlier this morning. You can, you can see all the things and still not see it. You can hear all the things and still not hear it. And that has to be what Jesus is thinking here. He's going into Jerusalem. These are the people of God who profess their belief in God. They believe in God. Not only profess their belief in God, but, but even they have an understanding and knowledge of God's word. They know of people like David. They've read about all the deliverers that happened throughout all the Old Testament. Lord, we want this. This is what we want, just like you did before. And not only that. Jerusalem is where the temple stood, and the reason there was a sea of humanity greeting him as he came to Jerusalem is because it was during the, the Passover feast, 
where people would travel from far and wide to observe the religious feasts that had been prescribed in the scriptures. You see? You see, they were all going through all the motions and doing and saying all the right things. The Pharisees and scribes knew the word of God very well. And they could probably even recite it from memory. They were all doing the right things. They were all leafy and green. They appeared to be a really robust, leafy, green tree that had all the marks and appearances of a tree that would produce some some life-giving fruit. But upon closer inspection, the tree was bare. There was no fruit at all. What good is a leafy tree if it doesn't actually produce any fruit? So you can go through all the motions. You can go through all the rituals. You can say all the right things. You can even quote scripture. And you can look great, but if you're not producing fruit, what good is it? What, what good is it? You see, it's not just that Jesus was in a bad mood. He didn't just was hungry and said, you know what? This fig tree doesn't have any figs on it. I'm mad at it. Bang. No. It's not that he was just in a bad mood. It's not even that he was, that he was being harsh. Remember, I know you've heard me say this before. Whenever Jesus performed any miracles, there was always a purpose behind it. Always a purpose behind it. There was never, it was never just for the sake. This is what Bertrand Russell had wrong. You know, he said, that's an abuse of power. He was assuming that Jesus was just doing something because he could. That he was just killing this tree because, well, it's not meeting my needs in the moment. So, bam, no. That's not what Jesus is doing. This miracle is meant to function as a real life living parable that you can set your eyes upon. The fig tree represents the city of Jerusalem. And remember what's in Jerusalem. What's the focal point of Jerusalem? The temple. The temple. Here are all these people flocking to the temple, flocking to Jerusalem to, the, to, 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 to be and participate in all of these, these ceremonies, yet all these people are unresponsive to the message that Jesus brings, and the message of the fig tree serves as a, a foreshadowing of sorts. Oh, oh, oh people of God, this, this isn't going to end well for you. It won't end well for you for, for being leafy and green and showing and doing all the right things. If you don't bear fruit, it's not going to end well for you. This is the mindset that Jesus is conveying here. We find him in another gospel. This would have been around the same time as well. All these events are happening as he nears his crucifixion. And he says this in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. In other words, Jerusalem, you see how much favor I've shown you. You've seen how much favor I've looked throughout your history, how I brought you out of slavery, how I delivered you from your enemies over and over and over again. When I finally come to fulfill all the things that those things pointed to, you're unwilling and you reject me. So, so that's the message of the fig tree. Now, someone tell me how the clearing of the temple fits in with this mindset. How does the clearing of the temple relate to to what he's saying about Jerusalem and the temple? What's going on in the temple? What's happening in the temple right now as Jesus comes into it? Money changers, okay? Is it, let's get to a little bit further here. 
Remember, right now, Jesus' ire is directed toward Jerusalem, the Jews. The Jewish people who are missing the point. And I might even say, especially, especially towards the, the Jewish religious, uh, religious leaders. And he, as he arrives at the temple, I'm going to show you how this ties in with the fig tree. All right? Watch how this unfolds and listen. Okay, this is Mark 11, 15 and following. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in, uh, those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything to the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, listen to this, listen to this. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember, where was his ire directed? Where, who was he upset with here? The Jews, the chosen people of God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made a den of robbers. You see, he's frustrated with Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You see, as they entered the temple, they would have entered through the outer court. And the outer court was the place in the temple that was permissible for the Gentiles. Do you see what's happening here? This is the outer court. This is the place the Gentiles are allowed to, to be. And what's going on in this outer court? Money changing. Here, here's, some here's, here's something, you can buy some sacrifice. Uh, you can buy a pigeon to sacrifice here. I'll take your money, right? It was in this area, you know, the place for the dirty Gentiles. Let's, let's turn that into a marketplace. It's just the Gentiles out here, okay? You see, with the coming Messiah, most of the Jews, most of the Jews had hoped that he would come to purify the temple and clear it of the Gentiles, once and for all, but instead he came to do the opposite. You guys don't get it. You're not hearing me. You're watching my mouth move, but you're not listening. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. You see, Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple of the Gentiles. He was cleansing it for the Gentiles. All right? I don't know uh, if you follow sports. I don't know if you're a sports fan at all, but uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, bear with me for a moment. I, I've told you I'm a big fan of the uh, San Francisco 49ers, and I, I've, I've used them many times in illustrations. I've rooted for them all my life, and, and I grew up uh, in that part of the country, and my love for that football team has never waned. And it just so happens that my younger son in particular has taken to loving the team too. He, he's never lived there, you know, but he's, his attachment to the, to the team is only by way of his father. Uh, it's actually really sweet. And while this, this, uh, this last year, this last season was an up-and-down season, all right. They started by winning only three games against five losses. The fans were angry, writing the season off, but then they turned it around. They won seven of their last nine. They got really hot towards the end of the season, right at the right time, right, right before getting to the, uh, the playoffs. They were beating good teams, and towards the end of the season, they had a number of must-win games. If they didn't win them, they'd go home, and they, they kept winning them. And they would make it to the playoffs, and they kept winning those games, and we really started to get the feeling that this was going to be the year. This is our year. They won their first two playoff games against the Cowboys and the Packers, and just saying that out loud makes me happy. <laughs> then they faced the Rams. You know, the winner of that game would eventually go to the Super Bowl. And the best thing about the Rams is that we'd, we'd already beaten them twice this year. 
We'd beaten them twice. Not only that, we'd beaten them six times in a row. So things were looking good, but they lost. They lost to the Rams, and the Rams, hoorah, eventually went to the Super Bowl and won it, all right? It had been such an up-and-down season. And, and as the closing minutes of that last playoff game dwindled down, you, you can't help but just sit there. Sit there, and you're, and you're watching the team. Sell. We must have looked so pitiful. My son and I, we had our, our jerseys on, you know, like we played for the team. You know, just in case they called us and said, hey, we need an extra fullback or something like that. Just sitting there and watching the other team celebrate, all, all the while thinking, we could have won that game. We should have won that game. How'd this happen? It, it's such a letdown. Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You just witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> And not only did he raise Lazarus from the dead, but he did it very publicly. He, he did it out in the open. And the other times Jesus did things like this, it was always very quietly. And in fact, he often said, don't tell anyone. This time he did it out in the open and everybody saw it. Everybody saw it. And then he rides into Jerusalem. People are cheering. They're waving branches, crying out, save us. You're the savior. Save us now. You know, they must have been thinking, this is it. This is our year. This is it. We just beat the Cowboys and the Packers. Nothing's going to stop us now. And then you have this account of the fig tree sandwiched between the temple cleansing. And if you're a disciple, you're thinking, this is, this is supposed to be our big moment. And Jesus, you're kind of being a downer right now. And as we've already said, though the disciples don't get it, Jesus knows. Jesus is, is mourning Jerusalem because they don't get it. They've rejected him. So he curses the tree and the tree dies. Object lesson understood. But then look how Peter responds. It's Peter's amazement over the tree that Jesus cursed. He says this, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And remember, Luke, he could, Mark could have put this anywhere. Okay. He could have put this right, those two things adjacent. But again, he deliberately puts them surrounding the account of the uh, of the temple, clearing the temple. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay, so it is, it's kind of a downer moment. It feels negative. It feels bad. Is that what Jesus leaves the disciples? He, then he says this. He says this in, in verse 22. And the response at first pass doesn't seem to match the scenario. You would expect Jesus to say, well, this is a parable of sorts. You, you expect him to explain. It's a real life metaphor for Jerusalem, but he doesn't say that. Instead, what does he say? He says this in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does uh, not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Wait, this seems, this sort of response doesn't seem to fit everything that's just happened. Why isn't he telling us more about the Jews or, or about the, uh, the Gentiles or, or something? Else? Why all of a sudden are we talking about faith? It almost sounds like he's saying, you know, if you thought killing a fig tree was impressive, right? If if you thought that was impressive, if you just believe you can throw a mountain into the sea, you should give it a try sometime. That's what it sounds like he's saying here, right? But what's he saying? He follows the lesson of the fig tree uh, and his actions at the temple 
with a lesson on faith. How is that related? It's really profound. It's simple yet profound. It's as if Jesus is saying, what, what has been the object of your faith to this point? Where, where have you looked for faith? And maybe you looked over his shoulder and saw a temple. That's where you put your faith. That's where, you, that's where you've put your, your, your religious energy into that place over there. That's what you've done. The object of your faith is not a temple. The object of your faith, though you don't realize it right now, is me, Jesus, not me, Lear, Jesus, okay? Jesus Christ, the new and greater temple. That's what he's setting up here. He's pointing to the new and greater temple, which is Jesus Christ himself, the temple for all nations. That is the object of your faith. Believe in that. Believe in that. You see, the fig tree, the fig tree is really about the temple. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside, it's a hot mess. It's a hot mess and it's all out of order. What does belief in Jesus do for you? Belief in Jesus cleans you from the inside out. You see what belief, what faith in Jesus does? It's like Jesus is going through your heart, turning over tables, clearing out the money changers, clearing out all the things that you've, you've done, clearing all the things that you've worshipped before, clearing out your, 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 uh, uh, the thing you've had loyalty for. He's turning that around. It's a little metaphor. It's a little metaphor. His clearing the temple is what, what he's doing in your heart, what he's already done in your heart. Belief in Jesus cleans you from the inside out. So even when you're a mess on the outside, and we all are, you're accepted and you're well and you're fruitful. You will produce fruit. You will produce fruit because real change has occurred. Not just outer change, but real change has occurred from the inside out. All right? I know that's a lot. Uh, and it's, that gives us a little time. What questions do you have or what thoughts might you have to go along with that? Had you ever made the connection before between the fig tree and the temple? What, what uh, questions or thoughts do you have? Anybody? Online too, if you have something online, you can send it to me in the chat. Yes, Rose Marie. Uh-huh. Right. I think, okay, here's, this is going to be a technical explanation. I read a little bit about this and it's, uh, it's may, it may not be as uh, um, clear cut and simple as we'd like. Okay. So reading about these fig trees, that it's possible, it's possible for fig trees to turn green during this time of year. And they would first produce little buds. Okay. And these buds would eventually give way to, to the figs. It's possible to even eat the buds as a way of, of nourishment or as a, as a way of satisfying. But apparently this tree didn't even have these buds. So it could still be out of season for figs, but still produce, produce the fruit. And Jesus says, I don't even find these little buds to, to eat. Now, again, that, there's a little bit of speculation involved in that, but that's the best that I've seen so far in terms of the commentaries that I've read, that even out of season, it's possible to find nourishment from a green fig tree. And in this case, Jesus found nothing, nothing at all, not even the little buds that you might expect to find uh, out of season. Yeah. Um, 
Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A wasp? Is that what you said? Uh -huh. I hate wasps. <laughs> That's very profound. I had not read that. Let me let me bring the people up to speed on the on the online. So Rosemary was saying that uh, very interesting, very very interesting is that okay? If you're if you're a, a botanist. Maybe you might know this, but apparently there are female fig trees and male fig trees. Is that right? And in order for the, uh, the, the fruit, which is not technically a fruit, but an inverted flower, right? To be pollinated, it has to come from a wasp, from taking from the male tree to the female tree, right? This is fascinating. I've never heard this before. And that, that even that could be metaphorical for the, the fact that the Jews were not allowing the, the Gentiles to come into the, uh, to the, to the, to the temple uh, or keeping or trying to keep them out. And again, I'd not read that before, but it's fascinating and it fits with, it fits in line with, uh, with all the, the description and everything that we just read about. It fits in line with that, but I'd not, I'd not heard that before. Fascinating. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. How old are you? 11, 11 years old. That's amazing. Okay, so uh, tell me your name again. It's George. Okay, George, 11 years old. And he was just saying for the folks online, and for those of you that couldn't hear, is that uh, the, what, you, what you notice about the tree is that it's not bearing fruit. And the same thing with the temple, uh, you're making a connection between the, the, the tree not bearing fruit and the temple not bearing fruit right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And again, that's very deep. It's very profound what you're saying, because again, it's, it's as if the tree is all leafy and green and the temple, which again, should be a place that bears fruit as well too, is not bearing fruit. So you, you've made a great connection there. That's exactly right. Good job, George. Yeah. Someone else? Who can top that? Come on. <laughs> Who wants to dare go next? Let's see if I have anything online here. Anybody? Thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's also very good too. It also fits in line with uh, the metaphor of everything that's going on. That was Dean and he was telling, I'm gonna try and repeat that. That's, uh, that's uh, so uh, he had a little bit of experience uh, in, the, in the farm with the uh, family. Um, and sometimes you would plant the seeds in the spring, in the fall, in the fall. And you plow it under, plow it under. sit there in the winter. And then when spring comes, it's, 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 it's the food. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so though it looks destructive, 
it really serves a greater purpose. Okay, again, we're carrying the metaphor out too. It's not that we now throw out the temple in a, in a sense, or not that we throw out the law. Uh, it's still something that is still what undergirds uh, everything that was fulfilled in the New Testament. It still is the nourishment in a sense. It's everything that, that, uh, that was pointed to in the Old Testament through the law and through the temple now is completed. It's completely and fully nourished in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Yeah, still works. Great. It's amazing. It's amazing how this, this uh, it's, it's almost as if something divine put all this together. Imagine that. Someone else? All right. All right, let's all go plant a fig tree when we get home. And <laughs> male or female, I don't know. I don't. And but apparently, it take takes wasps to be able to see. Wasps are good for something. I've I've hated wasps my whole life, and apparently they uh, give us fig newtons. So let me close this in and make sure I don't have anything here. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then. Uh, uh, again, always happy to, to discuss further if you have anything else you want to ask me privately. So uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the wonder that is your word. Uh, and we thank you that uh, there is something new to be found in it every single time. Every single time. Uh, we thank you for that wisdom. We thank you for the truth that is in it. Uh, we thank you that it's not only just words on a page, but it's living words that uh, actively speak to us and transform us and change us and shape us into the uh, likeness of your son. Uh, help us to never tire of, of nourishing off of it and, and receiving nourishment from it. But Father, help us hunger for it uh, so that we can be changed by it and then change the world uh, through your word. Uh, go with us as we go different places today. And uh, um, thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.